Um, we're in a series, a uh, fresh look at the, the old book. And we're, um, we're taking a look at stories that from, like the, from the Old Testament that even if you're not you know, a church person, you've probably heard them. They've probably been swirling around somewhere uh, in your head. And if you are uh, somebody who's spent a lot of time in church and you're, um, and you're a Christian, you know the Bible really well, you're like, oh yeah, I got that. I, I know that one. I know how that goes. And the idea is to try and shake us up a little bit, to, see, to take a fresh look, a different um, attempt to see a new way, a new thing that maybe God's teaching through these, these texts. And, uh, and so today, today we're, we, we, uh, <laughs> we, we get to, well, things, things have been going bad for humanity. We've been in Genesis. Things are about to get real bad for humanity. Um, and so uh, today, today's sermon is called Grace Finds a Way, and we're going to be looking at the very beginning of the story of Noah. Um, you may be familiar with that, that story. You might remember there's the ark and then there's all the animals. We're actually not going to cover, we're going to get, we're going to go before that. We're going to get the beginning of the story of Noah because I think it's, it's one of the most fascinating passages in scripture and it's, it's just, it's remarkable, um, what, what God has to teach. And um, I, I would like you to think about this. If you're, if you're, you know, maybe you're an agnostic, you're not quite sure about faith, you're not quite sure about religion. Um, one of the things that people uh, who are not quite sure about religion are, they, well, like, we get stressed out about is how mean God comes across, all right? There's, uh, there's, there's this, in fact, one of the very first, um, quote-unquote, Christian heresies was by this guy named Marcion in, uh, like, 150 AD, so just maybe a hundred years or so after Jesus was raised from the dead, and he said, I, I love Jesus. Jesus is awesome. What I can't stand is reading about how awful God is in the Old Testament. He was like, that God's crazy. He's mean. He's angry. He does all this awful stuff. And I just can't, back, I can't get behind that God. In fact, uh, nowadays, some, of our, um, some, some people in, in our culture who maybe are not sure about religion, they have the same sort of opinion. I remember when uh, we invaded Iraq, when the United States invaded Iraq, I was driving on the freeway and I saw a bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker said, when Jesus said, love your enemies... I'm pretty sure he didn't mean bomb the crap out of them. And I thought that was cute. That was funny. And I didn't know whether or not that person was a person of faith, but you could see that they were buying into this sort of thing. Like, Jesus is good. Jesus is good. The whole, like, violent, attacking, mean God, bad. And so let's let that uh, say in our minds. Why is God so mean? I'll, uh, I'll just read the text for you, and this, this, is, uh, this is my translation. Um, you can follow along in the Pew Bibles if you want. Genesis 6, 5 to 8, and, and I think you'll see what I've done here. Then Yahweh saw that humanity's wrongdoing on the earth was monstrous, and that every idea their hearts thought up was thoroughly evil all the time. So Yahweh God regretted making human beings on the earth, and, and he was heartbroken. Then Yahweh said, I will wipe the human race I have created off the face of the earth, from man to animal, even the crawling things, and even the birds in the skies, for I regret making them. But Noah found grace in Yahweh's eyes. Things have been bad. Uh, we've, we've, you know, first Adam and Eve disobeyed. They did the wrong thing. And then uh, Cain and Abel, that was last week, um, Cain did the wrong thing. He ended up murdering his brother because he was humiliated before God. 
And what, uh, we, what I've skipped over is, 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 is more and more of a spiraling descent. So if you read the end of Genesis 4 and then the beginning of Genesis 6, you find out that things have gotten tremendously terrible. And so when the text, and I'd like to highlight that, um, when that every idea their hearts thought up was thoroughly evil all the time, that's kind of true. In fact, after Cain, um, it says that people got progressively more and more violent until there was this guy, Lamech, who walks around bragging about how many people he's killed and about how many, basically, sex slaves he's taken. It gets, so, and that doesn't, it gets worse, actually. It gets worse. It gets even worse. Uh, it gets to the point where um, there's a, a really strange text at the very beginning of this chapter. And if you're curious about it, we can, we can talk. But basically, it, it indicates that divine beings, maybe like um, fallen angels or uh, beings that had served God, came down and basically uh, sexually abused uh, women and then, like, and, and using their power to take humans as their, their uh, concubines or wives. Uh, sexual abuse um, is rampant. Violence is rampant. Violence is all in all. This is actually very difficult for most people in the first world to understand because we're completely, it's so far removed from most, most of our experiences. I have a buddy who, um, he was uh, an assistant district attorney for the city of Los Angeles. And uh, he was the new guy um, in the department, and he was kind of like trying out to see if that was the job for him. And so what they did is they put him in the, um, the, the horrible, horrible crimes unit. And I will not share what he um, experienced, but I'll say this. He, um, he told me, I had to quit because nothing that I saw could be redeemed. He saw um, sex and violence that was so horrific, um, so deeply depraved, that the victims did not know they were victims. They simply assumed that this is how life is and ought to be. The perpetrators were the same way. It was such a, a, a depraved culture. He said uh, it was like, it was like uh, what the world would be without any civilization at all. We like to think that human beings are, you know, these, okay. Scripture says that when left uh, to their own devices, what human beings become is something less than the animals that they were supposed to cultivate and tend. So let that sit in the background. That's, that's what's going on. I mean, the, the language is insane. I mean, it's, it's so emphatic. Like, every single thought from every single person, evil constantly over and over and over again. The idea is that like uh, the people that my friend had, had, had been trying to work with, their minds have been so warped and so corrupted by violence and sexual and emotional and psychological abuses that they can't see good anymore. It's like beyond them to even conceive of what might be normal and good and, and, and the way things ought to be. It's just, it's just vicious evil all the time. And then scripture says something Really fascinating. It goes on and says, Yahweh regretted making human beings. There are some translations that try to soften this. Yahweh was sorry that uh, human beings had been made. No, the language is very simple. It's the simple Hebrew for God had regrets. God looks at what's going on and he changes his mind. 
He's like, that's another way that this can be translated. He changes his mind about the creation of people. This was a mistake. Now, if you're a, if you're a church person, that might be a little uncomfortable. Because right, isn't God perfect? God doesn't make mistakes, right? God has a plan. God knows everything. God is good. God is wonderful. God would never, how could a being as great and as good and as wonderful as God regret anything? It's a legitimate question. And, and, and the idea that God did something that was regrettable, maybe that starts to sound like God did something wrong. Well, if that's true, then God's not God, right? Water Wars, July 29th. Really want to make a plug for that. Um, I mean, I don't know all the things that are going to happen, but we are going to have uh, one of these bad boys. Yeah. The Backyard Dunk Tank. So pumped about this. Um, I only have one clear memory of dunk tanks. I was uh, six years old. And uh, at the time, my father was teaching at a school. And the school was going to have a carnival. And the carnival was going to feature a dunk tank. And because my father was a teacher at this school, he had volunteered for a one hour to sit at the top of the dunk tank and receive the abuse of his students. If you don't know how a dunk tank works, basically the target, you throw the ball, you hit it, and the person sitting there gets dunked. Now, I was in t-ball at the time. I was very, very excited. I, uh, I, had, I was not good at any sports, but I, I played them because I had to. And uh, one of the things that I, I, so my parents, both of them were like, Tom, get ready. This is going to be your opportunity to really get dad back for all the mean things that he's done to you over the years. So really get that work, get your, so I'm really pumped, I'm getting excited. And I hoard all my tickets, because it costs tickets to, uh, to throw the ball and dunk your, your, your father. And so I hoard all my tickets, I don't do any of the other rides, none of the other stuff, I'm just, because I want to have every possible opportunity. And you kind of have to throw it far, afar, like a distance. And so I was worried I wasn't going to be able to do it, so I hoard all my tickets. And finally the time comes, and I get, I get in the line, and he's up there, and he's, you know, ready. and then the bigger kids are coming, and they, they dunk him, dunk him, dunk him. And I finally get to the front of the line, and I give my tickets, and I throw the ball, and I don't even get to the target. I'm like, ugh. I just can't even, I'm just, I don't have it. I'm like, oh, that's okay, it's okay, I've got more tickets. So I, another ticket. Ugh, this time right at the bottom of that yellow thing right there. Just not even close. So uh, the, the attendant is like, and now my dad's starting to make fun of me a little bit. In, in, a, in a good-natured way. Like, you know, try to, try to get us, like, get the competitive spirit out. And so uh, the, the attendant, uh, the person running it, gets, lets me go halfway. So now I've got it. Awesome. I start throwing nothing. I, I can't even get close to the target. My tickets are, are being dispensed. They're running out. They're running out. I'm on my last ticket. They move me so close I can almost touch <laughs> the red button. My dad's looking at me. And at this point, I think he kind of wants me to get it too. <laughs> there's, there's a certain amount of sympathy, but I'm mad. I'm angry because I'm humiliated. I can't even get my own dad. Like, three more shots. This is the last one. The first one, wide left. Whew, okay, Casey at the bat. All right, second one, wide right. Whew, this is it, last opportunity. I wind up my best, you know, kick. I throw it. And I just throw it right over the entire thing. Like, it wasn't even, it was so, it was the worst throw of the entire, the entire afternoon. Everyone's laughing at me. I'm humiliated, so I run off. It's a sad story, right? Yeah. What I've neglected to tell you is that at the beginning, at the morning, we were setting up the carnival. 
I was interested in the dunk tank because I was like, this is going to be great. And so my dad, he showed me how it works. And I have a little picture here of the, the back of a, of a dunk tank. Yeah. Okay, now what you, so you can see there's the platform there, right? And it's connected to like a, a, a little rod. And then the, the rod like comes to the side here. And then what you can't see is behind where the, the target is, there's like a little thing you can just kind of doop like that. It just takes a little trigger. A little tappy-tap, and then, then, it, then it collapses. And the idea is, if the person's done with their dunk tank, that's how you get them out. Well, I was just tall enough to reach that. And so I ran up. Three minutes left on the clock. He's about to get down. He's looking straight ahead, has no idea it's coming. The water is ice cold. He's basically dried off because it took me so long and failed so many times. And I just yanked that thing. He plunges down. I'm feeling wonderful. He gets up. He's looking around. Thomas Andrew Bennett, what have you done? He sees me. I run off. In that moment, my father regretted teaching me how the dunk tank works. He did. He regretted it. He didn't make a mistake doing it. It wasn't a bad thing that he taught me how the dunk tank worked. But he assumed that what would happen is I would take the knowledge of the dunk tank and I would use it for good purposes. Instead, I used it for evil. And so he, was, he regretted that and he felt really bad. The thing is, he didn't know what I was going to do with that knowledge. I could have used it for good. Instead, I used it for evil. So that brings up a question. When God's regretting, I mean, when he, when it is, is God like, he didn't make a mistake, right? But, but if he's regretting, that, that indicates that he didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, it's interesting, we, we say things like God's never surprised. That's something that Christians like to say. Or God, uh, all, he has a plan. He knows what's going to happen, right? God knows everything. It's really interesting when you actually look about how the Bible talks about God's knowledge, it's a little different. Right? He, he knows all things. Okay, that's 1 John 3.20, sure. But typically when the Bible talks about God's knowledge, it's much more like in Psalm 139, where, where, oh Lord, you have searched and you've inquired, you've researched, you've thought about things, you've looked at things. It says, though God um, has the whole world and all of human hearts before him, uh, the past, the present, the future, and anything God seeks to know, anything God wants to know about, he knows. He just inquires and finds. Right? And so, and so the psalmist is looking there and is like, you, you understand my path. You know my lying down. You've got it all figured out because God has looked and, and has, has figured all that out. And yet, there are places in Scripture, and this is just one of them, where it does seem like sometimes God is surprised about stuff. There are places where Jesus doesn't seem to know um, exactly what someone's thinking or is about to do. It seems as though God allows in God's power to find out. That there's a part of being God that enjoys or is interested in, like, maybe withholding, like, all the cards and, and sort of seeing how things play out, to see what people are like, to see what's going to happen. That God actually has the power, knowing everything, can actually withhold some of that knowledge so that he can see new things. I don't want to get into a strict doctrine of what God knows or doesn't know, but I will say this, and this is in your note sheets. The Bible assumes that God knows whatever God wants to know. Whatever he wants to know. In this case, it looks as though his, his choice with the creation was to, to do this and have this amazing plan where humanity is going to go out and cultivate the world and make things wonderful and, and tame the beasts and make the beauty out of everything. And he, and he sets human beings up to do that. And then he lets them loose. And then he watches what they do. And he's just unbel- he's, he's unbelievably surprised and saddened. Humanity goes out and instead of doing what he told them to do, humanity starts killing each other. 
and abusing each other in the deepest and darkest ways. When we go back to the text, God's response to that is what? He's heartbroken. I mean, literally, he's pained in his heart. He sees what has happened and he's devastated. What God expected was that people would take the freedom and the, and, the, and the opportunity they gave them and do something wonderful. Instead, what people have done is they've decided to kill each other and abuse each other. And does that sound, I mean, does this sound, like we're, we're talking about God here, does this sound like that angry God, that wrathful God that people like to talk about? Is that what we see here? Or is there something different about God's response to violence, response to sin? Like, do I have the, uh, the, the angry God versus Jesus God? Yes, right. Up there you got God, that he's mad. He's creating out of anger. I think that's the Sistine Chapel. And then uh, on the other side, you have, you have you know, kind, compassionate Jesus, right? Tender, he meets the Samaritan woman, and he, he knows all the things that she's done wrong, and yet he forgives and tells her to sin no more. He's compassionate and kind. Well, when God's confronted with sin, his first response is not, let's smash people. I'm mad. I'm angry. No, God's first response is to be brokenhearted. In the same way, in that, there was a, my dad went very quickly from surprise to angry. But uh, I think there was a moment where he was just disappointed that I wasn't willing to play by the rules of the game, that I didn't know how to lose well. And it made him sad. It broke his heart a little bit that, that I wasn't you know, mature enough to know how to handle things. In the same way that, you know, we say you've, you've mentored somebody and you've spent time teaching them and helping them grow up, and then you see them, they start to make terrible choice after terrible choice after terrible choice, and the whole time you're sitting there, you're not angry at them, you're just devastated. We think about this for parents. I mean, we think about this with our kids. We're desperate to see them do the right thing, and when they don't, when they make those bad choices, man, yeah, we get angry, but first, we hurt. And God is exactly the same way. That's the next thing in your note sheets. God's first response to sin is hurt, not anger. In fact, I don't have it on your note sheets, but um, it's so interesting when in Isaiah, Isaiah spends so much time talking about God's wrath against Israel. But when at the beginning, the prophet says, your, your anger is strange to you. It's weird to you, God. It, 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 anger is, is something that you do because you must, but it's not your natural modus operandi. It's not who you are in the deepest core of yourself. It's a part of what you experience and do, but it's not the, the, the core of you. It's weird to you to be angry like that. What, what instead it, it is, is for you to be hurt when things go wrong. So, the solution this is where the genocide starts. Then Yahweh said, I will wipe the human race I have created off the face of the earth. This tends to strike us as like mean, angry God. I think um, instead, this is a God who uh, doesn't see any other way out. I have a friend, uh, his um, stepdaughter and uh, her husband spend time um, with the people of Darfur. And, uh, and, and they, uh, 
several years back, um, the people of Darfur went through a, an ethnic cleansing and a genocide, and there's a ton of refugees that are still homeless, um, and, and there's really nowhere for them to go. And so this, uh, this couple, they spend their time um, kind of trying to meet their needs and, t- and really just tell their stories at this point, because there's, there's actually no hope for them. No government cares. Um, their own people would rather see them dead. And so they just, there's just nothing that can be done. And so the only thing that these people can do, that this, this couple can do that, that seems to help, is to blast their story out. Because you hear it and you just, you're like, you just weep. I mean, through no fault of their own, they were just decimated. In the literal sense of that word, like decimate, meaning, you know, a tenth of the people survived. Um, and and it's, it's a tragic, tragic story. And, and human beings, and especially us Westerners, we like want to go in and we're going to fix it, right? So we're going to go to Haiti. We're going to fix Haiti, right? Like, I remember the first time I went to Haiti, I was like, how are we going to fix this place? And I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. No, no, that, no there's nothing that can be done here. This is way, way, way too big. And Haiti is a place where um, there's a vibrant, powerful Christian minority. Imagine a world, sort of the world that my, uh, my attorney friend entered, where there's just violence all the time. And there's nothing else. Well, what are your options? Imagine God, he's sitting there and he's looking at his project, his sort of his, his divine experiment. God from God's own desire to, to have communion with others out of his gracious uh, love creates the world, right? And he creates human beings out of his love desiring to see them flourish and, and have joy and peace and live together as God lives eternally in the communion of the, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. To see that poured out on us. He, he lavishes that out and it's just killing in fact, the people have gotten so bad, they're worse than the animals they're supposed to care for. And now what's God going to do? What's the only solution? There's nothing else he can do except wipe the slate clean. There's no, there's no redeeming this. It's hopeless. The word, uh, the wipe off there, typically it's... Um, almost even erase from memory. It's like, let's pretend this never happened because it's gone so bad. And then you see the fallout, right? Because God realizes if he's going to wipe out humanity, if he's going to get rid of this, this corruption, this virus that's destroying itself and everything around it, he's actually going to be, end up murdering a whole bunch of animals too. I, I've tried to bring that out in the way that um, the prepositions are done, but it really, God's like, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe out human beings, but that's going to extend then to the animals, right? Even these good, wonderful things, these beautiful birds that are flying in the skies, these creepy, crawly, interesting things, they're all going to get wiped out too because I can't get rid of one without getting rid of the others. This is the devastated, broken heart of God where he sees his beautiful painting, his wonderful masterpiece, marred and scratched and destroyed to the point that he has to throw the whole thing out. You guys like the far side? Remember the far side? 1980s? Can I show you my favorite far side cartoon? He got in a lot of trouble for this. Uh, The Christians were very upset with him. Gary Larson, the artist. This is in God's kitchen, if you can't read it. And God has has done his earthquake. He's baking up his earth. Uh, And he's he's pulling it out of the oven. 
He's smelling, and he's like, hmm, something tells me this thing's only half-baked. Little bit blasphemous, right? God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't do things wrong. And yet, if we're honest about the world that we live in, something's very wrong with it. Now, yeah, it's because of human sin, sure, of course. But God was the one who gave human beings the freedom to do what they wanted to do. God was the one who could have, if he wanted to do it, he could have, you know, made, like, I imagine sometimes, like, God, you could have done so much better, because, I mean, I'm a, obviously a great creator, right? And so I'm like, God, what you could have done is you could have made it so that human beings had freedom, but only to do good things, right? So, like, instead of, uh, you know, being able to choose evil, it would be, like, just different, different variations of good, right? So, like, you'd go through life, and you'd be like, well, I could, you know, um, help the poor, or I could um, uh, help people who are, you know, sick by being a doctor, something like that, right? Your only choices are good things. You'd be forbidden from being like, you know what? I think I'm going to become an assassin. That sounds fun. Like, you 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 couldn't God have done that, right? That is a possibility. It seems as though God could have done that. He didn't. And as a result, he he left, he did his experiment, his divine thing, see what human beings would do. We wrecked everything, And it's interesting, when God sees it, what he does say is he's like, I have to wipe this out because he's taking responsibility for our failures. He's ultimately saying, I was the one who started this. I've got to fix it. I was the one who made this mess by making these people, and so I'm going to fix the problem I created. This is not... The, um, the angry, vengeful God who wants to just wipe out people and hurt them and torture them. It is a God whose, whose overwhelming, gracious love is so devastated and he's so worried about what's going to happen to the world because of the corruption of human sin that he's like, I've, I've got to put a stop to it because I was the one who allowed this to happen. This thing's half-baked. And he realizes, crushing his heart, that he's going to have to rip out all the beautiful things that he's done. It would be as, as if you were an artist and your masterpiece was there and overnight while you were sleeping, someone came in and just, just took ink and just splashed it all over your, your, your masterpiece and you, you woke up in the morning and you looked at it and there were still corners, still parts of it that were good but you have to take the whole piece of art and toss it out and burn it because it, it's, been, it's been ravaged. The next uh, thing in your note sheets, God's decision to erase humanity is his way of taking responsibility for our failure. Him taking responsibility for our failure. Well, this is uh, not a cheery text, um, and yet it ends with, I think, one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see in the Bible. We're up to our necks in violence and hopelessness. And then Genesis says, Noah found grace in Yahweh's eyes. Now it's true. Um, If you keep reading down, eventually you'll get to a point where it says like Noah was like a good guy. And so what, what we're, we're, as human beings, we're tempted to think that what's going on here is that God sees all this violence, all this misery, and he's looking around. Is there just one person who's good? He sees Noah. He's like, oh, thank goodness. I love you, Noah. No. No, 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 no. Grace. Noah found grace. What's the definition of grace? What's grace? Grace is not 
uh, well, it's not like you're looking around and you're like, I want to find somebody who's beautiful. And you see someone who's beautiful and you're like, you're beautiful. That's not them finding grace in your eyes. That's them earning because they are beautiful. They're wonderful and you, and you respond to that. No, 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 grace is when you're looking around and, 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 and there's nothing that's worth your attention. There's nothing that's worth uh, your love or care. And yet you see something and you give that love and care and favor anyway. God spent all of his time looking at humanity. Humanity has failed, and he's got to wipe them off. He's going to start all over. He's, there's no hope for humanity. There's no possibility of redemption. And then something within God, as God's looking down, it, it, there's nothing about this particular guy. But as he's looking, the Holy Spirit, who, who brings grace, kind of, kind of pours out and just settles right on this dude for no reason at all. And God's heart is pricked, and he says, you know what, you're not beautiful, but I'm going to make you beautiful. Wait a minute, I'm God. Just because human beings decide to do their best to screw up my plans doesn't mean they can, because I'm God. Just because the whole world is neck deep in excrement and failure and disgusting corruption, just because that's the case, I'm God. I'm bigger than that. I, I can, I'm the one who decides what to make beautiful. I can take all of this excrement and turn it into fertilizer. I can find somebody and I can make something beautiful happen where nothing could possibly happen. The Hebrew is deceptive when we, when we take it into English. Noah found grace in Yahweh's eyes. Really, it should say, grace found Noah in God's eyes. I think um, we've got the, the last thing in the note sheets. Even in the darkest darkness, grace finds a way. I mean, isn't, think, about, think about what we've just said about the state of humanity, the state of the world, and who God is. He's heartbroken over sin and death. There's no hope in humanity, and yet somehow when God looks down, his grace settles on Noah, and he says, I'm going to find a way through you to salvage this wreckage. I am going to find a way to make this place beautiful again. I'm not giving up on you. Does that sound a little bit like Jesus? For those of you who um, aren't church people, the whole notion of, of Jesus is that God looked and he saw that humanity was hopelessly broken, completely unable to find its own way. And God said, I, I've tried so many things. I tried Noah. Soon he'll try the Tower of Babel, then he'll try Abraham, and then he'll try Israel, and then he'll try the law. He's going to try the prophets. He's going to try a lot of different things, and every single one is going to fail. And finally God says this. He says, instead of leaving it up to you, I'm going to become one of you, and I'm going to do it myself. You have turned the world into crap. And I am going to come down and make that fertilizer and build and grow something beautiful out of it. You're a person, uh, you're here, and 
you're, um, you're well aware that you are a wreck. You've done um, some really bad stuff. And you know what? You're honest about it. If God wanted to be just, he could just wipe, wipe me away and he'd be right to do it. Grace is finding you today. God isn't, God's not giving up. He, he thought about it. Yeah, he's disappointed. Yeah, he's bummed. But, but really what God's in the business of, at the core of who he is, is to take that and redeem it and find some crazy way to, to turn it inside out. And here's the, the wackiest part of all of it, is that all you have to do is trust him. He doesn't ask you to do a darn thing. You come here, and you brought your baggage, you brought your, your evil, you brought your sin, you brought all the things that you've done, you've wrecked your life, you've wrecked your family, and, and, there's, and God would be, God says, all, I, all I'm asking for you is just trust me. Believe in me. I will give you my life. I will redeem you. I will find ways to, to turn all of this ugliness into something gorgeous. It's as though God looks at the, at the, 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 the art of your life and it's splattered with black ink and there's just a little corner. And God says, I'm going to take that and I'm going to make it glorious. Just believe. Just trust me and I will heal you. You're someone, you're here today and uh, it's not your fault. It really isn't. You know, you didn't ask uh, to be hurt. You didn't ask to be abused. You didn't ask to be neglected. But you were. And when you look at yourself and you're honest, you don't see much of anything of value. You see what you've become, what you've been turned into by circumstances, by the corruption of the people around you. You see the violence and the ugliness, and that's all you can see. The promise of God is that grace is finding a way. He is finding a way into you. He is finding a way to heal you. He is going to find a way to redeem you. He is going to find a way to show you that he loves you, that you have value, that you are not a lost cause, and all you have to do is trust him and receive it. There's somebody here who's dying. You're afflicted, maybe literally dying. Um, and you can't, see, you, you just see the future as just you sort of putting off the inevitable and wasting away. That you're, not, it's not going to be long before you're just, you're in the ground, that's it. Grace finds a way to redeem Death. If you look around, you will begin to see it. It's there. If you simply trust, you will see that your suffering, your end, is not the end. It is not in vain. It is not lost. God is a part of it. And he will redeem it. And he will bring life out of it. But you have to look. Last but not least, if you're someone here today, and you're blessed, grace found a way. You were redeemed. Well, you got to tell people about it. You really do. Because there's a lot of people out there who, um, who don't think there's any hope. And what they need is they need someone who's been through it to say, no, 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 hold on. There's somebody here who's like, I would like to stand up right now and be like, Grace found a way, and I want to tell you about it, brother or sister. I, yes, I'm not going to let you because you probably take too long. 
and then everyone would get bored and we'd have to leave. But, brother or sister, you do need to share that with people because they need to hear it. They need to know that God is alive, God is still working, that grace does find a way, that it's not the end, that there's still some hope. They need that. And you gotta get to meet them and you gotta get to share it with them. And then maybe you'll find that you are actually God's grace to somebody else. You are God finding a way with somebody else. God uses you and sends you and you are grace to them. God's not mean. God is a God of grace. And his grace finds a way. I'm going to pray. Um, and pray with me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of speak on behalf of, of, of everyone here. Okay, so I'm going to be praying to God on, on all of our behalf. And if there's, if what I'm saying um, is your heart, like you, you do, you have come to God and, and, you're, and you're like, you know what, I do need your grace. I need to trust you because I'm messed up and I need you to forgive me and change me. If that's something that you need, pray with me as I say that. If you're somebody who really deep down, you kind of hate yourself because you've been corrupted and you're broken, it's not your fault. I'm going to be praying that God will, will give you grace and pray with me as I do that. Okay? So, um... Let me, let me end this in prayer. Gracious God, your goodness is overwhelming. You are not a God of hate or anger. You are a God of grace. And God, we come before you. And God, uh, we need that grace. God, I pray for anyone here who, who needs your forgiveness, who needs your eternal life, who needs to trust you for the first time, God, that they can say with me, Dear Lord, forgive me my sin. Make me new in your life. Make me new in your Son, who gave himself to erase sin and death forever. God, there are those of us here who are carrying a lot of baggage places that we didn't choose to go, but had to be anyway. And for any who are here, Lord, I pray that they'll pray with me. Dear God, I am not good. I do not see value. I do not see life inside myself. But God, I believe that you can give me that life through, through your son. That at the cross, he provided life. He gave value. He redeemed the dark things. And Lord, I trust you right now to redeem me, to change me from the inside out because of your, your son and because of the power of your grace. God, for all here, I pray that we will trust, even in the darkest darkness, that your grace finds a way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.